Welcome to the Nasty Pasty Podcast once again, dear listeners, and my sincerest thanks to you for tuning in. It must be some form of punishment, right? Or perhaps an accident? I mean, no one could listen to this podcast on purpose, surely. Regardless of how you got here, however, let's give you the usual tour of the place. I love video nasties. There, I said it. For those unfamiliar with this term, it's a special slang term of British origin for any film that happens to be on a VHS that includes extreme horror, violence, sexual or visceral, and any other seemingly objectionable content, like racism, homosexuality or cannibalism. It was retrospectively applied to a certain set of films which the Director of Public Prosecutions back in the day produced and highlighted on two lists of the so-called nasties. The police acted upon this list and seized any copies of the film that they could and prosecuted them, incinerating them if the jury agreed that the films were obscene. Even if they weren't, they were still seized anyway, under a legal gambit whereby a distributor or shop owner admitted obscenity through the simple act of forfeiture. It was all very shady, very suspect, and completely based on untruths and an out-of-control moral panic. I found out about all this rather late in the early noughties, when the era was all but over. I then started collecting the named and shamed titles myself, and I got annoyed, mostly because half of them weren't even that effective as filmed at all. The ones that were quite strong or effective were nowhere near what I'd consider obscene, so that eventually led to this podcast, where I find similar titles and compare them to the nasties themselves, bringing into question why dozens of other similar films were not listed as nasties when the content was just as, inverted commas, nasty. Over a year since I've started, I've covered slashes, cannibal films, sexploitation, rape and revenge, jello, pretty much every genre that was under the microscope during the nasties saga. Today, we're covering two out of four films made in 1989 for Italian television, entitled Houses of Doom, or La Casa Maledette, which means Cursed Houses. Before we get into the films themselves, I'll give you a bit of a backstory on them. Presumably in 1988 or early 1989, Italian television channel Rete Italia TV commissioned a series of films to be shown on Italian television as part of a collective effort to bring giallo-style films back into the public's eye and reinstate some interest in the Italian film industry, which was arguably dying a slow death at this point. In the same vein, Lamberto Barva's directed Bravido Giallo series was also commissioned by the same people to instill the same exact effect. For the Houses of Doom series, director Lucio Fulci and Umberto Lenzi, both of whom had long-established careers in horror, were both hired to shoot four films between them for the series, whose only brief was to have a horror film set in a haunted house. Lucio Fulci produced The House of Clocks, La Casa Nel Tempo, and The Sweet House of Horrors, La Dolce Casa Degli Oriori. While Umberto Lenzi made The House of Lost Souls, La Casa della Anime Aranti, and The House of Witchcraft, La Casa de Sortilegio. Together, the foursome were submitted to Rete Italia as part of their plan to broadcast the material, but upon viewing the films, the company felt that they were far too gruesome and violent for TV exhibition, and the plans were scrapped. Because the films had been made, though, the company couldn't just let them sit without making any money, so they all had a brief Italian cinematic release before they were released on home video, subsequently exported to Europe and Japan to cash in on the lucrative VHS market. They never quite recovered the return that Rete Italia expected, but they have been a part of the video phenomenon ever since, and are at least interesting little examples of both Fulci's and Lenzi's later work. The infamous Vipco in the UK, who released many video nasties, picked up these four films and released them for their Screen Time collection, or Vipco's Vaults of Horror series, on both VHS and DVD. Now that we know a little bit about what we're dealing with, today's episode is featured on Lucio Fulci's contribution to the Houses of Doom series, with his two films, The House of Clocks and The Sweet House of Horrors. So let's get straight in there with House of Clocks.
At a large mansion at night, a woman called Maria wanders through the rooms with a flashlight, intent on looking for something. Passing through the rooms, which have countless clocks and timepieces, she then finds a trail of blood leading to the basement, and following it, makes a grim discovery of a married couple's corpses in their coffins, with a large nail driven through their necks. The next day, the elderly owner, Vittorio, awakens to behold his large clock collection, and his pet cat, Alaric, revealing that Maria is in fact his maid. Soon after offering her help, noticing that something seems to be bothering her, he disturbingly murders a bird on the windowsill with a back-scratcher and feeds it to Alaric. His wife Sarah soon arrives and also notices Maria's suspicious behaviour. The couple descend into the basement to clean the corpses up, revealing that the deceased are the elderly couple's nephew and wife, killed supposedly for coveting their money. Later that morning, Maria passes by Peter the groundsman and enters the shed where Sarah is gardening. After hearing that Maria will be leaving permanently, Sarah grabs a wooden stake and drives it through Maria's groin, instantly killing her. Sometime later, three kids, Diana, Tony and Paul, are driving a hot-wired car through the country, discussing a place to head to, when they stop off at a convenience store and steal several bits of food, using Diana as a decoy. On the drive from there, Paul falls a fake gun out on Diana for a prank and then terrorises a cat which is stowed away in the car by tying it into a plastic carrier bag. At the mansion, Sarah answers the door to two policemen, only for it to be about her malfunctioning electric gate. By nightfall, the three kids are smoking weed and arrive at the mansion, intent on robbing it too. Ringing the bell, Diana explains to Vittorio that her car has broken down and that she needs to use the phone. After being led to the phone, Diana unlocks the window from the inside, allowing Paul and Tony to enter and hold the couple at gunpoint with the fake gun. Suddenly, however, Peter the groundsman enters holding a shotgun to Tony's head. After a brief struggle, the cat Alaric wanders in and distracts Peter, allowing Tony to knock him down, where he strikes his head on the corner of a table and killing him. As he dies, the shotgun goes off, blasting Sarah in the stomach and killing her too. In anger, Vittorio attacks Tony, forcing Paul to shoot Vittorio dead with the shotgun. As he dies, all the clocks in the house suddenly cease to work, and the three kids stand in shock at what's happened. Deciding to follow through with the plan, the two men plunder the household while Diana pushes for them to leave. They're unable to when they realise that the family's vicious dogs are running around outside, forcing them to wait until they're gone. As Paul and Tony move the bodies elsewhere, the clocks in the house suddenly spring to life and begin to run backwards in sync with each other. As Diana and Tony find a room to spend together, Paul retires to his room alone, sulking with a joint. But he decides to go downstairs, and he finds the dinner table oddly set up rather than in disarray like it should be. Searching for his lighter, Paul eventually discovers that Peter is missing from where they've hidden him, and he then inexplicably finds his lighter in his pocket, where it wasn't there before. He begins to panic when Vittorio and Sarah's bodies seem to be back where they were killed, and he runs away, spying a puddle of blood appearing behind a door. As he hears footsteps pass, Paul is suddenly shot with a shotgun blast, waking Diana and Tony upstairs. Diana and Tony are disturbed at the suddenly immaculate condition of the dining room, and after hearing a noise, Tony rushes upstairs, unaware that Vittorio is now revived, watching him. Heading into the kitchen, Diana is shocked to find Sarah alive, who compliments her on her taste before stabbing her hand and removing the ring that she's stolen from the house. Reuniting with Tony, the pair descend into the basement and find a dying Paul. Daylight soon appears, despite being three in the morning, and on the ground floor, Sarah answers the door to the same police officers as before, indicating that time has indeed flown backwards. In the basement, Diana notices her hand wound is suddenly healed, when Peter, Sarah and Vittorio break into the basement with a hatchet. Diana and Tony escape, but Paul is grabbed by the murderers and killed. Fleeing across the now empty courtyard, Tony is suddenly grabbed by arms which shoot out of the ground, with the murderous trio in hot pursuit. Diana runs back inside and hides, while outside, the arms holding Tony are revealed to be a revived Maria, who has killed him by piercing his chest with a stake. Finding her way into the room with the niece and nephew's bodies, Diana is then shocked when the pair suddenly revive as Peter, Sarah and Vittorio enter. Instead of focusing on Diana though, 
the nephew shoots Peter dead and impales Vittoria with a spiked stand before the niece strangles Sarah to death with her wedding veil. As the trio die, Diana suddenly awakens in the car just before they travel to the house, with Paul and Tony alive again. Deciding ultimately not to enter the house, the friends drive away and discuss their odd dream, whilst inside the house, the nephew and niece are revealed to be living there now, with Maria back as their maid, rather happily. Back in the car, the three friends dismiss the dream as mere coincidence, and then discover that the black cat Paul tied up is still alive in the bag. It suddenly escapes and jumps at Paul who is driving, clawing him in the face and causing them to crash the car, fatally injuring all of them. As they lay dying, the watch on Tony's wrist suddenly stops going backwards. Parasites must be eliminated. I have arranged everything. She broke too much and she knew too much. Now she won't give us any more problems. Fine. There is, however, the problem of replacing her. Yes. This is the third time we've had to change our maid in just one year. Hmm. Who can that be? morning. Can I help you in any way? We're just checking, ma'am. We saw your gate open and thought it looked a little bit strange. Is anything the matter? Oh, oh no. It's nothing. It's just an electrical fault. It happened just this morning. Glad to hear that. I'll see that it's repaired immediately. Just one thing. This villa's a bit too isolated. You should get a burglar alarm. Really? Thank you. I'll speak to my husband. Pleasure. Thank Goodbye, you, ma'am. Goodbye. Hey, did you see that? Whoever they are, they must be loaded. Millions. Nothing for us to worry about. They're very nice young men. However, Peter, I think it would be better if you repaired the gate before evening. The House of Clocks is quite surprising in many ways, not the least of which is the theme of time going backwards, which is rather ambitious for a TV movie. For a late Fulci film, it has most of the hallmarks that would easily define his work, with quite a few surprises thrown into the mix. For one of these hallmarks, it's easy to see why the film could not realistically be shown on television in the 80s, mostly due to the presence of Fulci's OTT standard gore scenes that at least established them as being on par with his earlier work in terms of gruesomeness. Fulci's abstract and dreamlike narratives are also present in House of Clocks, but to a much more muted degree than his profusely metaphysical works like The Beyond and City of the Living Dead. The film starts off strong, with a characteristically atmospheric sequence of the Maid Maria wandering the clock-laden hallways of the Corsini mansion. The rather gothic spectacle of a married couple in coffins, with a large bolt driven through their necks, just before we're introduced to the bizarrely off-kilter and sinister old couple, really sets the ground for the film in a promising fashion. The introduction of the pot-smoking teenage thieves juxtaposes this in a not-so-clean way, as the two themes seem to clash a little. In terms of characters to root for, there doesn't seem to be a definitive side to choose from, as both are equally as reprehensible. On one hand, you have an old couple who, without question, murder others to get what they want, animal or human, with a slight hint of them cheating their niece and nephew from their inheritance. The fact that they're wearing wedding gear only insinuates that the old couple were waiting for their matrimony to be concluded in order to kill them. Our teenagers are almost mirror images of the old couple, willing to defraud a shop and steal groceries, have the gall to rob an old couple, killing a cat by suffocating it, and then murdering when they need to. Sarah's and Peter's deaths are more accidental, of course, but Vittorio is shot purposely by Paul. It's really difficult to choose any side when the both of them are just as wretched. That's not to say that the characters are flat and boring, though, however. Diana seems to be the only one who objects to their antics on a few levels, 
but not enough that she actually does anything about it. After a huff of some good Mary Jane, she's pretty okay with what's happened, even getting her kit off and screwing in the old couple's bed. Tony is your token romantic interest, who has little to do with his screen time other than look terrified and giggle. Paul is much more negatively defined, being quite a jealous and vindictive lunatic, who ties a cat in a plastic bag for no reason other than spite. He's pretty unstable too, pulling a gun out on Diana for a small rebuke, spying on her and Tony, branding her a slut for daring to have sex with her boyfriend, and having no real concern for shooting an old man dead, who is, quite rightfully, trying to attack the person responsible for killing his wife. The old couple are far more interesting and pleasing to behold, though, as characters go, though they are no less villainous. Vittorio is rather polite and gentlemanly, and seems to come across as a genuinely nice old man. A little eccentric, though, certainly. He caresses and strokes his timepieces as though they were his own children, and he'll kill an injured bird to lavishly spoil his cat Alaric. The deadpan way in which he does this, especially when he feeds the said bird to some toast crumbs, effectively portrays the real creepiness of the guy. So too for Sarah, she comes across as a real lady, old and wizened of course, but well-mannered and old-fashioned. She has a bit of a sickly sweet vibe going on about her though, rather like Dolores Umbridge from the Harry Potter books. The sweeter her demeanour, the more sinister and dangerous she appears. No more is this evident in her scene when she kills Maria. One minute she's rather dottily speaking to pests as she kills them on her plants in the greenhouse, before extending sympathy to Maria for her mother's supposed illness. Then all of a sudden she grabs a stake and skewers Maria through the abdomen, smiling afterwards and humming a tune as she wanders off to do more chores. While there is certainly a creepy edge to the pair, these moments are also tinged with campy humour. The flagrantly pompous way in which they conduct their murderous, sinister activities does raise a smile most of the time, such as the moment when Sarah kisses her dead niece and has the skin sticking to her lips. Peter is a rather enigmatic character, as he seems to be rather dedicated to the couple for a groundskeeper, I certainly wouldn't go out of my contracted work to pursue an intruder with a shotgun. I wonder whether it's intended that Peter is actually their son, deformed with only one eye, in a bit of a harken back to classic horror tropes of having a lurch-style doorman or a butler. For this reason, the only really sympathetic character to me is Maria the maid. She stumbles across the bodies in the basement, and understandably concerned, tries to leave her employ, only to be murdered by Sarah. She does get her revenge, of course, but we'll get back to that in a little bit. Because of these characters' moral issues, there's no one really to root for, but the rather bizarre nature of proceedings actually benefits the film, as the viewer is then left aghast to wonder what exactly is going to happen next. It's rather like an episode of Big Brother, in that you're watching people you care zero about, fighting amongst each other and killing, all the while time is flowing in a nonsensical fashion allowing for some truly what-the-hell moments to enjoy. When our three spoilt brats cause the deaths of Peter, Vittorio and Sarah, the real draw of the film begins. Presumably due to the intent care and love that Vittorio offers to them, the countless clocks in the house supernaturally begin to flow backwards, preliminarily reversing time whilst still allowing it to flow sequentially. That may be confusing for fans of time travel films, as it's not usually considered omnidirectional, especially within the same moment. Oddly enough, though, in Fulci's film, just such a thing happens. The lack of explanation or expansion on the mechanism of Vittorio's clocks probably works in the film's favour, as I doubt that any semblance of exposition would explain the function properly. The first thing that becomes apparent is that the house and the grounds around it become affected, first by reviving Peter, as he was the last person to die. The mess on the dinner table clears itself up and the freshly laid dinner appears, blood spatters disappear, etc. But when Paul goes downstairs, the bodies reappear where they once were, where, which is a little bit out of sync, if you'll pardon the expression, with time going backwards, as the blood splatters would also be there. This is not the only instance, though, where the time element is not really that consistent. Vittorio, Sarah and Peter are all revived by the effects of the clocks, though the teenagers remain unaffected by the most part. Paul is shot and injured massively with a shotgun blast, and remains injured for the majority of the film, while Diana's hand wound, inflicted by Sarah, disappears, while Paul is still suffering. Paul's lighter reappears in his pocket, 
though Sarah's ring does not vanish from Diana's hand. Peter has vanished from his closet when Paul explores it, but then he's not in the dining room either, which is nonsensical because he had to have been in either place. Maria gets revived, but she still looks relatively dead, despite the niece and nephew reviving in near-perfect condition. Coupled with the fact that the policemen arrive identically to how they did earlier, and the general problem of events happening while time is still in reverse, makes the whole plot point very bizarre and unexplainable. As mentioned before though, if you can just accept that time is flowing abnormally, it's much more enjoyable. There's no way you can explain the complexity or the rules of the way that time flows in this film, especially when the ending relies on such a massive time slip, when time has actually been reversing relatively consistently until then. Fulci has always had elements like this in his movies, though, that make little logical or narrative sense, so if you normally dig his movies, this isn't really going to be an issue. The main result of time reversing, of course, is that our antagonists revive from death and are able to stalk the three brats with an enjoyable vociferousness. The creepy old couple with their groundskeeper in tow now become an almost cardboard cutout villain pack with the sinister laughter and incessant energy of pursuing their guests. It's all very enjoyable, however, and it allows for some truly kick-ass moments, like Sarah retrieving her ring back by piercing Diana's hand with a dagger on a bracelet. I'm not sure how else to describe it, but it was awesome, whatever it was. Especially with a line like, Let me help you take it off. Especially when time goes even further than the old couple, Maria gets a chance at bat when she revives as well, as the niece and nephew. Rather poetically, the old couple and Peter are killed once again, in a furious display of the young beating out the old. Sarah, Vittorio and Peter are murdered, and replaced by the younger characters. It almost seems symbolic of youth triumphing over the old, in a way. That's not for all the characters, though. The reversal of time allows for the pesky kids to get their just desserts when their car crashes due to Paul's animal abuse of the cat. I found this to be perfectly acceptable. Anyone who abuses animals can take a long drive off a ravine in a car, and I'd sleep just as easily. Apart from the overwhelmingly bizarre nature of the time theme... The other interest in the film is generated by the oftentimes gruesome gore effects in the film, which are a little less frequent than you'd expect, but they're memorably exaggerated when they do arrive. You get metal bolts through the neck in a love letter to the splatter of the beyond, a wooden stake driven through Maria's stomach, though due to the size of her skirt, it does look more like her privates are getting stabbed. This is an odd effect too, as her entrails fall out with a horribly brownish tinge, and it's certainly memorable despite not being especially natural looking. Perhaps Sarah pierced a large intestine and she interrupted some faeces. Who knows? The deaths of Peter, Sarah and Vittore are also entertainingly gruesome, while Diana's hand stabbing also looks incredibly painful, similar to Lamberto Barber's bathroom scene in A Blade in the Dark. Other non-gore moments of interest are the incredibly atmospheric shots of the courtyard wreathed in a sinister fog while the family dogs wait patiently. This shot reminded me almost of the beyond from the titular film, with a very desolate landscape peppered by just a few living creatures. Another moment that's memorable is the impression that Paul gives in the shop when shown some scotch. My dear lady, Scotland is not England. Toodaloo! Ultimately, the film is very enjoyable considering its low budget, and it looks like a bona fide movie, despite being made for TV. It may not be as up to par as Fulci's other works, but it's certainly a piece of work that deserves to be seen. Fulci completists like me will probably love it anyway. Diana was played by British actress Karina Huff, whose only other appearance was in Luigi Cozzi's The Black Cat. She unfortunately passed away at the age of 55 in 2016. Tony was played by Keith Van Hoven, whose only other appearance of note is Umberto Lenzi's Black Demons, which is also sometimes known as Demons 3. Swiss actor Paolo Paolini, who played the sinister Vittorio, has had a few minor appearances in other films, such as Dario Argento's Inferno, Deodato's Cannibal Holocaust, and Double Team with Jean-Claude Van Damme. English actress Bettina Milne plays Sarah, and she'd later appear in 1999's Tea with Mussolini. Al Cliver, whom we've seen before in The Damned, was a very recognisable face in the video nasty world, as he was in several, such as Zombie Flesh Eaters, The Beyond, Devil Hunter, and Cannibals. 
Cliver played the role of Peter in this particular film, though. Carla Casola, who played the maid Maria, later appeared in Fulci's Demonia and Michele Soavi's The Sect. Massimo Sarcielli, who played the role of the shopkeeper, had an equally smaller role in National Lampoon's European Vacation, as well as Lenzi's House of Lost Souls, which is also a part of the Houses of Doom series that we're covering. Additionally, one of the policemen was played by Vincenzo Luzzi, who was also the property master on the film. He reappeared in a small role in Fulci's Cat in the Brain, and he also functioned as a property master on The Sweet House of Horrors and Demonia. The director was Lucio Fulci, of course, whom we've already covered several times, enough for all you listeners to know all about. The writer was also someone familiar, Gianfranco Clarisi, who was the writer of Cannibal Holocaust, House on the Edge of the Park, and House of Witchcraft. The other writer, Daniela Stropper, has also been featured on Nasty Pasty before, when we did Killing Birds and also Witchcraft, and he also wrote the film that we're covering next week, The House of Witchcraft. Producer Massimo Manassi also produced The Sweet House of Horrors, House of Lost Souls, as well as all four films in the Bravido Giallo series. Marco Grilla Spina, the other producer, also worked on the same stash of films, as well as 1987's Delirium from Lamberto Barva. The eerie music was composed by Vince Tempera, who worked on various other films, like the second film we're covering today, The Sweet House of Horrors, as well as Luigi Cozzi's Black Cat, and he even worked on the soundtrack of Kill Bill Volume 1. The cinematographer also worked on Sweet House of Horrors as well. That was a chap called Sebastiano Celeste. The editor, Alberto Moriani, we've mentioned before, when we covered Zombie Flesh Eaters 2 and Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals. Moriani would actually work on all four of the Houses of Doom series, counting the House of Clocks, Sweet House of Horrors, House of Lost Souls and the House of Witchcraft. The assistant director, Michele De Angelis, worked in the same capacity on a few of Fulci's films, like Sweet House of Horrors, Sodomer's Ghost and Touch of Death. De Angelis, however, would become much more well-versed on miscellaneous roles on films, like Dogville and Mandalay from Lars von Trier, and the remakes of Dawn of the Dead and Willard. Lucio Fulci's daughter, Camilla, worked as an assistant director as well on this film, as well as in Sweet House of Horrors while the special gore effects were done by Giuseppe Ferranti, whom we've seen before when we covered Rat's Night of Terror and The Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Being released so late in the 80s, the film wouldn't have had a chance to become lumped in with the nasties, and it's had a very limited release too, such as a brief cinema role in Italy, but it's mostly been relegated to -to direct-to-video releases. Notably, the UK releases came in 2001 on VHS and DVD from the infamous Vipco, who were in mighty trouble during the Nasties scare for releasing Driller Killer, Zombie Flesh Eaters and The Boogeyman. Because of the obscure TV movie nature of their making, distribution has been relatively poor ever since, and the Vipco DVDs are the only way to see these films really, and they're being redistributed by the bootleg Beyond Terror label in the UK. There are, of course, US individual releases too, if you're so inclined. So, that was The House of Clocks. Let's move on to our other film of the week, The Sweet House of Horrors.
At night, a burglar prowls through a large mansion, locating a safe behind a painting. Suddenly, the owners, Roberto and Mary, arrive back and discuss their children, who are away on vacation in the nearby mountains. As the burglar accidentally knocks a vase over, Roberto notices him and confronts him, only to get viciously knocked out when the thief repeatedly rams his head into a pillar. Going after Mary next, the thief bludgeons her eyes out and caves her head in with a doorstop, before returning to finish Roberto off with a poker. Dressing the scene as an accident, the burglar moves the corpses to a car and has it driven off an incline and burns all the evidence. Sometime later, the couple's children, Sarah and Marco, attend their parents' funeral with their Aunt Marcia and Uncle Carlo and the gardener Guido. While incredibly upset, the children occasionally start giggling due to the presiding priest's errors. Marcia and Carlo take the children back to the house and during the next day when Carlo is away in the town for something, Marcia begins to hear strange sounds at night and is unable to sleep. She wanders into the attic and is disturbed at the sight of a mess of hanging dolls, illuminated by a pulsating yellow light coming from a toy fly, which suddenly moves towards her and scares her. The next day, Carlo suggests that they sell the house and take the children to live with them, inviting an overweight real estate agent called Mr Kobe over to look at the house. Marco and Sarah are visibly annoyed at this, and when Kobe climbs the staircase to the attic, one of the stairs disappears and causes him to fall over, injuring him. When the kids laugh at his accident, Marcia scolds them, but subsequently looks in the attic to check the stairs and finds that the bug toy didn't even have batteries in it. Later, the gardener Guido is painting outside when he comes across some sheets, triggering a flashback which reveals that he was in fact the burglar who murdered Mary and Roberto. As the sheets return to their bloodied state, he runs away frightened as Carlo discovers the sheets and shows them to Marcia, only cementing her resolve to sell the place. At night, Marco and Sarah cry, missing their parents, when two individual flames travel through the house's corridors and enters their bedroom, with the children overjoyed to play with the seemingly sentient spirits. In the morning, Guido is racked with guilt and feels unable to return to work on the house, and is about to accept a final check for his work from Carlo, when he is suddenly stalled, a wound appearing on his face. He has another violent flashback revealing that Mary did in fact unmask him before her death, and in distress he flees the house, screaming about what he's done, unable to notice in his madness that a truck heads towards him, mowing him down and killing him. The injured Mr. Kobe arrives again to help with selling the house and is blown over by a sudden violent wind that appears. The children notice that the flames have reappeared and soon after Kobe tries to get up, his crutches cause a severe burn on his hand. After he's left, Marco and Sarah grab children's masks from the attic and they light candles, wandering through the house calling upon spirits to make contact with their mother and father. As they wander outside, two large stones in the courtyard, which were splashed with their parents' blood during Guido's moving of the bodies, begin to glow. The flame spirits return, to the notice of both Marcia and Carlo, but they're prevented from following the children by phantom fires that suddenly block the staircase. Inside the attic where the flames disappear, Mary and Roberto appear to their children and embrace them, letting them know that they'll be with them forever. Carlo and Marsha, however, have had enough and drive the kids away, only to stop when a thick fog stalls them. Carlo drives forward regardless, but the car suddenly levitates, preventing them from proceeding and delighting the children. The children reunite with their parents' spirits and spend a large amount of time with them, concerning their aunt and uncle, who believe them to be going insane. Feeling they have no other option, Carlo brings in a medium with a reputation for getting the job done, setting up a seance where he calls upon the spirit by speaking in German. During the seance, some of the furniture is moved and a large beam of light rushes through the trio, with Mary's and Roberto's voices being heard to plead for them to be left alone. When the medium ignores them, Roberto insults him, and the next day Mr Kobe and the medium arrive at the site of the house with a bulldozer to try and demolish the place, subject to Carlo's agreement. The machine malfunctions, however, and slams into the ground, before wildly swinging towards Kobe and the medium, clearly controlled by the spirits. In the attic, Roberto and Mary explain to their children that they have exhausted their energies, just as the medium tries to drive them out. As they fade away, they implore the children to leave as other spirits begin to invade. 
Finally getting out of the house, the children fall to the ground outside and suddenly notice the two glowing stones outside, which Mary and Roberto have now housed their spirits inside. The medium notices this and tries to snatch the stones away, only for them to cause his hand to melt away as the children laugh. Well, I think it's safe to say that the House of Clocks was probably Fulci's better output of his two Houses of Doom contributions. Not only is the House of Clocks more in tone with Fulci's work, it also just feels more together and horror film-like. The Sweet House of Horrors opens with a really violent and promising scene, which sets the perfect tone for a horror picture, but then it just suddenly turns into seemingly another film entirely leaving a jarring hodgepodge of ideas that invariably flips between being quite charming and then quite dull. It's certainly an interesting film for this juxtaposition of ideas and tones, but it's very debatable whether this makes it an overall success. The first scene is that of a burglar prowling a large mansion property. So far, so stereotypically Italian haunted house movie. I'm sure I've seen the exact same house before as well, and it's virtually indistinguishable from the likes of Ghost House, House by the Cemetery, City of the Living Dead, and dozens of other similar titles from Italy. When the owners return prematurely, the thief is forced to improvise, and what follows is a distinctly revolting, horrendously mean-spirited attack, which leaves owners Roberto and Mary stone dead. While a scene like this wouldn't be that out of place in an Italian horror film, the rest of the film is so light on violence and gore that this opening brutality feels extra vicious and it sticks out like a sore thumb. Roberto is punched and has his head bashed against a solid pillar, essentially cudgelling his head open as brain matter then sticks to it. Mary is then grabbed and bludgeoned in the face with a doorstop, rupturing her eyeballs and breaching her forehead. Finally, as Roberto struggles to stay alive, his head is beaten with a poker by the killer in a scene reminiscent of the house by the cemetery. While I've gone into detail with this scene, it is in fact portrayed just as luridly on screen, which just seems a bit off considering the remainder of the film, with the exception of Guido being mown over by a truck, is so tame by comparison. It also has a bit of a mean-spiritedness simply coming down to the situation itself. On the whole, I'd say that most burglars would become more nervous and try to flee if they get caught, rather than resort to murder. At the very least, they might assault the homeowner in order to bust out of there, but I'd say the instances of a burglar relishing the murder of two victims in this way to be pretty callous. Still, it makes for a visually exciting bout of gore, and to kickstart a movie off, it's pretty damn effective. Unfortunately, the rest of the film just doesn't follow through on this gratuitous opening. The children of the deceased, Marco and Sarah, end up living with their aunt and uncle, and they encounter their parents' dead spirits who appear as gentle flames. The rest of the film kind of plays out as a bit of a rip on the feeling of poltergeist, 
just minus the menacing presence of that film, with the exception of a few fleeting moments. The way the story is structured, too, is rather ineffective. With the opening the way it is, the main draw that I was expecting of the story was a bit of a whodunit, like who was it that killed Roberto and Mary in such a way, and for what reason? I thankfully got my answer, but I feel that this was revealed far too early. Guido turns out to be our guy, and we find out halfway through the movie. There's a slight disconnect as well with the burglar from the opening, and the character that we see as Guido, who's reduced to a gibbering wreck when the spirits make the body bag sheets turn bloody again. After this point, he's rendered to a mess, spouting his guilt at the first opportunity, and being driven mad with the sound of dogs and bells before he's promptly run over by a truck. A fitting end, of course. But how was a murderer who was sadistic enough to kill his employers when he could just as easily as tried to escape, now become irreparably broken by the sight of a bloody bit of cotton? The film at this point, too, made me feel a little bit like Twin Peaks. When the murder of Laura Palmer is revealed early in season two, I begin to wonder why I'm actually carrying on to watch it. It's the same with The Sweet House of Horrors. I genuinely wondered why there's still stuff happening afterwards. Surely in the same way that Patrick Swayze in Ghost was vindicated by the deaths of his murderers, I'd assume that Mary and Roberta would be able to pass on properly once Guido had paid for his crimes. It wasn't to be, however, and the remainder of the film becomes a random jumble of milk-toast hauntings, lovey-dovey parent and child reunions, and an over-the-top exorcist character who comes across as this film's answer to the child snatcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. It's one of those films that could easily have been a child's movie if the violence was edited out, which is quite distinctive for a film by Lucio Fulci. I didn't really anticipate such a mild film to come from the godfather of gore himself. That's not to say that the film is too boring. There's at least a comic element floating around with the incredibly cheesy flame effects, the dubbing is just as unnatural and unsynced as ever, and some of the images are at least visually interesting, if not in the slightest bit scary or creepy. Like the moment when Marsha goes into the attic and is frightened by a giant fly toy, at least has an atmosphere, with some harsh pulsating yellow lights and a bizarre bric-a-brac collection of sinister-looking toys and dolls. A moment when Carlo and Marsha tried to leave the grounds in the car does lead to a humorous levitation of the car, which looks more than a bit hokey, but you do give them brownie points for at least trying. The character of Mr. Kobe is also rather fun, simply because he's tormented just like an antagonist from a kid's movie, with an equally outrageous dubbing voice that really has to be heard to be believed. Another interesting representation of just how muddled and contrasting the film is, the children too are portrayed with a very strange bipolar quality. At their parents' funeral, they are, of course, inconsolably upset, only to then begin laughing like hyenas at the rather rotund priest who flubs a couple of his lines. One night, they're crying themselves to sleep. The other night, they're donning strange papier-mâché masks and performing rituals. It's all very jumbled and very strange, and the focus on the two children is at times irritating, at other times laugh out loud, such as the line, the flames don't like fat ugly men who do terrible things to them. It borders on the boring, but it never quite gets there, but then it equally borders on the interesting, only to never reach that apex either. It's not Fulci's best, unfortunately, especially as this time we don't even have that many decent standout characters to feel anything about. Carlo is rather cardboard in his actions and his dialogue, and most of the other incidental characters are so over-the-top that they barely function in the whole messy narrative. The only one with a little bit of development is Aunt Marcia, usually because she's the one who's bearing the brunt of the mild hauntings and the phenomena. She's kind of like the mother character in Poltergeist and Amityville and all the other haunted house films that vies constantly for leaving the house, only to get held back by the other characters or the script. This film is no exception, and Marsha is unfortunately limited by the fact that the children are telling the truth about their parents' spirits, and she only learns about this late in the film, when the maniacal nut of an exorcist is on sight to do the deed. The film ends rather abruptly after a scene involving a JCB slash bulldozer type contraption, which has been sped up Benny Hill style to an eye-rollingly comic reaction. The father Merrin wannabe thankfully gets a hand melted away in the film's conclusion but it does little to salve the bitter taste left in your mouths. Fulci's finest hour, this is not. There's a few moments worthy of mention and praise, 
but it's mostly lost on the overwhelmingly childlike approach to the storytelling and the set pieces. It's probably worth a watch simply to experience such a car-crashingly stark contrast between the many genres, but I doubt it'll be one that you return to then often. Unless you're me, of course. I'd have to give this a rewatch at some point just to see if it improves somewhat, but also just because I'm a glutton for cinematic punishment. Uncle Carlo was played by Jean-Christophe Bretignier, whose only other appearance of note was the, as the grotesque Lucifer in Bruno Mattei's Rat's Night of Terror, which we've covered before. Arguably, much more recognisable was Aunt Marcia, played by Italian actress Cinzia Monreale, famous for her portrayal of the blind girl Emily in Fulci's opus The Beyond. She'd also been in Joe D'Amato's Beyond the Darkness and Argento's later film The Stendhal Syndrome, Rather criminally, though, she's massively underutilised in this, and she doesn't get any chance at all to reach the heights that she did in The Beyond. Mary was played by Lupka Lenzi, who was mainly a stage actress and dancer, who nonetheless made an appearance in an Andrea Bianchi's Massacre and Fulci's film A Cat in the Brain. Roberto was played by actor Pascal Persiano, who'd made a small appearance in Lamberto Barva's Demons 2. The repulsive murderer Guido was played by Lino Salem, who played one of the punks in Lamberto Barva's Demons, which we covered quite a while ago. The portly Mr. Kobe was played by Franco Diogeni, who had various bit parts in The Suspicious Death of a Minor, Strip Nude for Your Killer, and Tentacles, whilst Vernon Dobchev, who played the maniacal exorcist, has had small roles in The Spy Who Loved Me, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and Day of the Jackal. Giuliano Gensini, who played the little boy Marco, later appeared in The Fishman and Their Queen, which was the belated sequel to Sergio Martino's Island of Mutations, while Hilary Biassi, who played Sarah, didn't appear in anything else, unfortunately. Finally, the comedy priest at the beginning was played by Dante Fioretti, who had various uncredited appearances in several things, but two of them are quite notable for being video nasties, Late Night Trains, and Deep Red. In terms of the crew, it's literally a carbon copy of everyone who worked on the House of Clocks. Understandably, Fulci reused his entire crew, or vice versa, whichever one was filmed first. The only differences were the writers, one of which was Vincenzo Manino, who worked on the New York Ripper, and Giliola Battaglini, who worked on Ruggiero Diodato's giallo hybrid film, The Phantom of Death. In regards to the release of this film, I might as well just copy and paste the same details as the House of Clocks. All four of these Houses of Doom films had the same release format, having failed to make it to Italian TV, and just having subsequent direct-to-video releases. As with the House of Clocks, the bare-bones Vipco DVDs are the only way to really see these films in the UK, and they are still floating around in repackaged cases after Vipco went under in the mid-2000s. Well, that's it for today, folks. There's another episode in the bag, but the Houses of Doom conversation isn't over just yet. We're continuing this theme next week, except that we're looking at Umberto Lenzi's contributions to the failed Italian cable series. Join us next Friday for our next episode, where I'll be covering The House of Lost Souls and The House of Witchcraft. Until next time, though, look after yourselves as ever, and I look forward to brightening your day yet again with descriptions of trashy, filthy, bloody, and otherwise disreputable entertainment. Ciao for now!